0: These implicit biases are timeless and universal. They date back to the prehistoric times because those people who were suspicious of other tribes and stuck to their own tribe, they were more likely to survive and pass on their genes. (laughs) And those who were said, hey, it's right here, they, uh, they were less likely to survive and pass on those genes. So implicit biases are vestigial tendencies, and we all have them, and it's no big deal. So we just constantly have to seek out perspective of others. And I say, you know, it's, it's a lifelong endeavor. I'm 53. I, I'm still making mistakes. And I'm still seeking out to learn more about others.
1: This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton.
0: And I'm Jean Katupai.
1: And this episode feels timely.
0: Oh, yeah. Big time. I feel like it fell. I don't want to say into our lap, but just like at. A time when I was like, I don't know what else to do, sort of thing. So I'm really glad that we got to spend some time with Ao for sure.
1: That's Io Magwood, and you already heard her talking about implicit bias at the start of the episode. Io taught social studies for 10 years, first at Caesar Chavez Public Charter School and next at the Moray School, both in Washington, DC. She left to start her own nonprofit consultancy, uprooting in equity. And she did so for a reason that will make sense to any teacher who's ever tried to tackle the history of race in America with their students.
0: The, the information wasn't ready available. I had to read books and books and books and journal articles and I, I, I totally burned out, which is why I'm not a classroom teacher. Uh, so I would not recommend that to anybody else. <laughs> But that is why I became an educational consultant, and that's why I used the Robin Hood method. So private institutions pay market price, but nonprofits (laughs) and teachers, I would not want anybody to have to repeat the tens and thousands of hours. It didn't, you know, this didn't happen overnight. It took me seven
1: years. As you may have noticed, the audio quality on this interview is a little rough, but the stuff I.O. says is so good. So if you're having trouble understanding anything, there's a link to a full transcript in the show notes. In our interview, Io talked a lot about perspective taking and understanding where people are coming from. And to understand where Io is coming from, you need to go back to her parents.
0: So I was born in New York City. My mother's black and my father's white. They met in the civil rights movement. And interracial marriages were pretty rare at that time. And also my parents... Uh, became disaffected with uh, race relations in the United States. Um, They had spent years in Brooklyn Corps, which is a Congress for Racial Equality. They were in the Brooklyn chapter, which is a a more radical branch of it. And after years of spending all their time on that, they saw almost zero progress. The local politicians would find ways of detours and avoiding things. So nothing changed and they became disaffected and they moved to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. <laughs> they went back to Africa, as a lot of a lot of black activists during that time in that time period did. Both my sisters were born there. My first language was Kiswahili, um, so we lived there for six years. And then from there, they moved to Monrovia, Liberia. Uh, we lived there for six years. And um, then they moved to Saudi Arabia. I lived there for two years. And then they sent me to boarding school here in the United States, Folks Academy, Andover went to college, and then uh, as soon as I graduated, I moved to rural Mexico, where I worked for a Maoist peasant cooperative. <laughs> I was there for about five years, and then I returned to the United States. And when I returned to the United States, I moved to Washington. I've been here ever since, pretty much, except for I worked for two years in Belgium.
1: Wow, that is wild.
0: Well, actually, all of that affects my approaches about racism. I spent a lot of my life crossing borders, so when I went into the classroom, that's how I taught students to, to approach the world and to approach each other across races. I said, well, you may see racism in this way, but you know, I taught them the, the allegory of the blind man and the elephant, the old Indian parable. So I said, it's, it's like that. We're all living on different parts of the elephant. And in fact, it, not only do we have different cultural perspectives, but we're geographically separated on, on different parts of the elephant, too, because the United States is extremely segregated, both racially and economically. So the only way we're going to be able to get a picture of the entire elephant and therefore address our country's problems is to listen to the other, the perspectives of the other major stakeholders on the other parts of the elephant. Because the police may act one way in your part of the elephant, but they may act very differently in another part of the elephant, or, mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So, and we, we did the very first day of my U.S. history class, I would have my students simulate that activity. We, I blindfolded three volunteers with scarves and had this old bear that I found in the art department, and they would touch different parts of it. And, and then I would, after that, I would show them a map of Washington, D.C., maps of Stark racial segregation and stark economic segregation. And then they would put it all together after discussing it and talking about, you know, after a while they'd be like, oh my God, we're living on different parts of the elephant. know, it was a very powerful way of helping them understand that. And I put a poster of that elephant on the wall and they would refer to it throughout the entire year. Like they would catch each other. They would say, ah, but remember the elephant. <laughs> you know, they would say to each other and you point to the wall.
1: Just to clarify. So blind man and the elephant that happens on the first day.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and then how long when you said like it takes a day what's a day how long do you see your students for or how long did you see your students for
0: uh it's been several years but i I think it was like 50 minutes something like that you know even if it was longer i would probably transition to something else that exercise doesn't take more than 30 40 minutes you know 45 minutes depending on how much discussion you have and you know that that's the hook
1: Mm
0: -hmm. that gives them like the overall picture and and it makes them want to to seek perspectives and realize the importance of it and why they should. Then the rest of the year, you're teaching them how to do it.
1: If we can go through that sort of forensically play by play, because I know teachers listening to this will be thinking, oh, I want to try doing that. Describe the sculpture.
0: I mean, I was just looking for anything where I would place one part in the hands of the volunteer um, so I, I looked around in my house for something that had different parts to it. I didn't see anything appropriate. So I went to the art department and um, fumbled around and, and found this old sculpture of a bear. Of course, it doesn't have to be bear. It's anything where, you know, one part of it is maybe flat and the other part is thick and the other part is round. You know, that was the only point. So it happened. In my case, it happened to be bear, but you just could use any object like that that they can find.
1: So you don't, you don't cut, you, you never cut up the statue. I was wondering about this when you said like different pieces of it.
0: No, I I, I simply, I lined up the volunteers uh, at the front of the class. I had the bear hidden. I blindfolded them with some scarves and and you know, I gave instructions, I gave instructions to the class uh, that when I took out the object, they couldn't blurt out what it was. And I told the volunteers I would be placing something in their hands. I wanted them to feel and assess the shape they were going to be asked to describe the shape that they should ignore the texture and that they should not let their hands wander. And so I silently placed, you know, different parts of the beer into their hands, you know, like a foot, uh, head, and the side, you know, that had very obviously different shapes. Then I put away the object, unfolded them, and asked them to describe the object to the class. And then I, I think I pulled out the bear. But even then, I wanted to push it a little further. We discussed it a little bit at that point. But I want to discuss it a little bit further because the idea of the blind man and the elephant is that people have different cultural perspectives or worldviews or ideologies. But then that's when I pulled out, I paired them up and then and gave them some questions to think harder. And um, I gave them some maps that showed economic segregation in Washington, D.C., racial segregation in D.C., and D.C. is mostly liberal, so political uh, segregation in, in the United States. And we discussed it and they realized, OK, so not only do we have different perspectives because, you know, we come in from different social identities, social experiences, ex- uh, religions, ideologies, et cetera, but we're actually also geographically, physically segregated, which, you know, adds to it. We can be actually viewing completely different realities. I've heard that other teachers sort of tell the students about the allegory and they read it and then they discuss it. But I find that it's so much more powerful when you actually simulate it. It somehow it, it really just, it has a much bigger difference than just telling about it or, or reading about it. Just going through that simulation, you know, it takes a day, but I find that it, it reaps some serious dividends. And of course, I follow up on that. You know, I weave it through, we bring it up and I tie things to it and stuff so that you know, we keep coming we keep, back to it, you know, and it also helps in a history classroom reinforce the idea of history being not just one factual narrative, but of course, conflicting and contrasting accounts uh, by primary sources. But history teachers teach that all, all the time. We can't just take the point of view or the perspective of one of those primary sources. We have to look at several and, and see how they contrast and, and complement each other. And students get that really quick. But all of a sudden, when it's an issue and they are simultaneously essentially the historian and one of the primary sources, that's when things fall apart. All of a sudden, they lose their objectivity as a historian and they can only see the perspective of their primary source. So as a historian that's looking at the present, we are both the historian and one of those primary sources. So you have to work a little harder for that to really sink in and to get the kids in the habit of saying, okay, you know, I'm only one of the primaries, so I got to pull myself out and be the historian, you know. So the blind man and the elephant is only the kickoff, uh, but then I pull it through the, the course in different ways. So for example, I say, the first step is understanding, uh, is a realization that we're only one part of the elephant, one part of the perspective, but then you have to do something about it. So one way is perspective taking, and there's lots of research on this. Uh, if you look it up in the in the literature on implicit bias on how to combat implicit bias. And it fits in perfectly. They don't mention elephants, but you know, social scientists have found that one of the best ways of combating implicit bias is perspectives giving and taking where you take on the perspective of, the, of other people. So I organize opportunities for the kids over the year. So I have a parent-student discussion about these issues. So the generational aspect comes in. Um, I set up a when I was at Murray, I set up a, a school exchange with um, my former school, Chavez, which was mostly low-income black and brown kids, and they, they exchanged perspectives across over the year several times, uh, and then had a big meetup at the end of the year. Even through literature, of course, you know, you're know you you're familiar with the reading memoirs of others, but I, I just teach the kids that you and you do this intentionally, you know, again, it's the responsibility part of benefiting from this amazing diversity is, is we each have the responsibility to be constantly educating ourselves and learning about others. And if you make a mistake, no big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. You know, we have these implicit biases are timeless and universal. They date back to the prehistoric times because those people who were suspicious of other tribes and stuck to their own tribe, they were more likely to survive and pass on their genes. <laughs> and those who were said, hey, yeah, hey, uh, here they were less likely to survive and pass on those genes. So implicit biases are vestigial tendencies, and we all have them, and it's no big deal. So we just constantly have to seek out perspective of others. And I say, you know, it's, it's a lifelong endeavor. I'm 53. I, I'm still making mistakes. And I'm still seeking out to learn more about others. It's just like we work on being a better human being and a better parent, and a better daughter or a sister or a better uh, member of our faith community. Or so, so I encourage them to seek out other perspectives, um, and I provide opportunities for that. And then another thing that we do is we don't do debates in the class. We deliberate. Hmm. So debate is when you're trying to convince others that you're right and they're wrong. So I said, instead, we can debate all, right, all day long. You can win and convince others that, quote, oh, unquote, you're right. Where is that taking our country and our society? We're training future citizens. So our goal is to make a better future society and to prepare students to participate in that. And one of those things is to be able to solve societal problems. And the only way you're going to do that is if you listen to the perspective of people on other parts of the elephant. I'm constantly driving that in. And so that when we deliberate and, and in deliberation, you're trying to understand not when, understand everyone's perspectives so that you can come up with you know a solution and this is great practice for becoming a citizen so at the end of whatever unit i'll say okay you know we understand we understand the elephant so you might recall that we're not going to do debates but do something a little bit different deliberations and then you know explain it i'm getting a little pushback uh, from a few kids that really love Debating, often male, (laughs) I find. uh, But most kids really got into it. And because I'd already sort of set the stage, right? We'd already been talking about the elephant, about perspectives taking, about implicit bias. So, you know, here's another opportunity. This is another way we're going to practice perspective taking and understanding about the rest of the elephant. And again, I also couch it in the same terms that I explained it to you as you are citizens and we live in a society together. We have to learn how to find solutions to our problems. And by just convincing everybody else that you're you know, you're right, you're wrong, that's not really helping. We have to learn how to learn about other perspectives so that we can figure out some policies and solutions that go towards addressing our greater societal problems. And then we can advocate for those on the local, state and national level. So also when you couch it like that, it also helps students say, oh, I, I want to do that, right? Especially in independent schools. Independent schools are very good at teaching wealthy white kids to be in charge, to convince everybody that they're right and their others are wrong. They spend tons of time developing leadership skills, presenting skills, and debating skills. Nobody ever teaches them, or rarely, how to listen, to cooperate, to work together, to problem solve. You know, those skills aren't as emphasized. But usually they start bringing it to the other classrooms the teachers start telling me what is this blind man and the elephant they keep bringing the uh, <laughs> they start spreading it to other places they get into it and you know because they, they they start to see our our country falling apart and they're and they're seeing what we're doing now is not working right mm-hmm. <laughs> our, and they're saying man maybe this is a different way maybe you know this will help in trying to move our country forward right and by the way by deliberations as various methods of doing that uh, more uh, specifically, like there's Padea seminars and uh, Socratic seminars and uh, SAC, structured academic controversy. So it's not like you have to reinvent the wheel. It, It already exists. That's the way you should do it. You shouldn't, you should not reinvent the wheel. What are the norms that you put up before you even start that work with the kids? Or do you, how much do you elicit like their feedback about what they think safe conversation should look and feel like? Actually, I I, I don't. I I don't that much. It's more on my end. I just set it up that way. I set up a a culture of perspectives taken. So then it's ingrained in the students. They're looking for the perspectives in all issues, not just racism, every day in their lives. Like I remember at the end of my first six-week unit, they discuss issues related to the elections with the parents in the evening. And Mm -hmm. always one or more of the parents will go off on a rant on one of the candidates. Mm And every single time one of the students will turn around and look at them and say, oh, we don't do that here. Mm. You know, we are looking at the data and the evidence and the underlying conditions. Uh, We're not worried about rhetoric and some candidate. We want to address the underlying issues and we want to make sure that we understand all of the perspectives. It's not like discussion rules, <laughs> you know. It's mm-hmm. it's like an entire approach to life. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, it's how I got through life. Remember, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. you're walking the walk. <laughs> yes, you know. So it's not just like a, a rule for for that discussion. You know, uh, many of the kids tell me that they go on and they approach life that way, and they they just automatically do that. Does that make any sense? I set it up yeah. as a you know way of approaching life and issues and seeing the world. But I do put safety guardrails specifically on conversations about racism. And I use a, f- a framework from um, Diana Hess and Paula McAvoy's The Political Classroom. They have the classic book, The Political Classroom. And they talk about um, how to have discussions about controversial issues. They say you need to distinguish between empirical questions and policy questions. So empirical questions are those that can be answered with evidence. And they have right or wrong answers that are discoverable. And mm-hmm. if scientists and social scientists haven't figured them out yet, then it's open. If they have come to a conclusion, if the majority of social scientists or scientists have come to a conclusion using with the evidence, then we consider them settled. Uh, oh, and we don't discuss settled empirical questions in the classroom. Like, why would you discuss at uh, what degree water boiled? <laughs> you know, something like mm-hmm. that, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas we do discuss open policy questions. So a policy question is an opinion question. There's no right or wrong answer. These are true ideological questions. So for example, some settled empirical questions are considered controversial by the non-expert public. So for instance, some people might find the question, did the Holocaust occur? Or do vaccines cause autism? Or is climate change occurring? Some people may disagree but with that, you know, non-experts, but the social scientists and scientists are very clear on that. There's a preponderance of evidence and data, and social scientists and scientists consider those questions settled. They have a right or wrong answer, and everybody agrees on that, and there's tons of data. So you can't debate those in the classroom. Does systemic racism exist is one of those questions, and so we talk about this in the classroom. Uh, I explain the difference between empirical and policy questions, and then I tell them, "Does systemic racism exist?" It is a closed empirical question. We're not going to we're not going to discuss it. We're going to find out what the answer is. I'll give them an opportunity to answer what it is, and we spend an entire classroom period looking at the data. We look at research studies from journal articles. We look at the data, and then at the end of the period, I ask the kids, "So, what's the answer?" And they're like. Oh my God, not only does it exist, but it is so much worse than we assumed. And it turns out that even kids who understood that it exists, they, were, they had been told it existed. They never saw the evidence themselves. Well, they might see anecdotal, but they'd never seen data on it. So once they you know, systematically looked at all the data, almost all of them said, oh my God, it is so much worse than we even imagined. They couldn't even imagine that it was this bad. So I said, okay, so a systemic racism exists. It's a settled empirical question. However, what, if anything, should the government do about systemic racism, including, for example, affirmative action? That is a policy question. There is no right or wrong uh, answer to that. And that question, it's an opinion that is going to vary based on whether you're liberal or conservative, because uh, the rules conservative of conservatives differ on what they think is the proper role of government. And I give the kids an example. I said, I actually sat down and talked to a bunch of black conservatives and all the ones I spoke to, at least I know there are some that differ on this, but from what I could see, the majority of black conservatives would say, of course, systemic racism exists. Have you seen the data? But no, I do not. I do, I ask a conservative, I do not want the government messing around with that. And I am against affirmative action. We definitely need to work on it. But the government is not the proper actor to be doing that. We should be working on that through civil society, social organizations, faith organizations, etc. When I set it up that way, I don't get a lot of pushback. In fact, oftentimes I get more pushback from liberal students who say, what? You're going to say that, you know, free of action is, that's an opinion question? I'm like, yep. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it is. But then at that point, I am welcoming in the conservative viewpoint. See, I'm saying we want to hear the conservative viewpoint. But basically what I'm doing is I'm stripping the racism off of the conservative viewpoint because a lot of kids will try to claim that their position that does race systemic racism uh, exist or not. They often claim that that's ideological. There's nothing inherently ideological. It's common among conservatives, but there's nothing specifically about the conservative ideology that would you know, say that. It's only about the role of government. That's conservative. So in that way, I'm inviting conservative viewpoints in, but I've Stripped out the racism because the vast majority of times that racism enters the classroom or any discussion about race is when kids say there is no systemic racism, but obviously there's racial disparities. Therefore, the racial disparities must be a product of Black inferiority. That's where you're more likely, most likely to see the racism coming into the classroom. So if you eliminate that, that cuts off the vast majority of, of potentially racist remarks because most of them stem from that. Plus, you get kids less defensive. Uh, conservatives don't feel boxed into corners, so they don't feel like they have to lash out. No one's saying anything racist, no one's calling somebody a racist. And then, so it's like you're setting up safety guardrails, and then you can have a productive conversation about race that is still extremely challenging. And you can sit down and have challenging conversations, but that are not going to go off the guardrails and, and just descend into, you know, chaos and name calling and, and defensiveness.
1: So day one was the the blind man and the elephant simulation. When do you look at this data on systemic racism in the school year?
0: Whenever racism first comes up in the classroom. With me, it comes up pretty soon. And I uh, want to add, I'm, everything I've discussed so far would be useless without the first pillar of my approach, which I, we haven't actually talked about, which is the kids need significantly more knowledge and understanding about the history of racism in our country. That's a big part of why they end up um, reaching towards opinions and and myths and misconceptions is because they don't have the evidence based understanding and knowledge about the history of racism. Our U.S. history classes don't teach it today. I teach a series of workshops on history of racism, and the reasons why I create them is because of this. Um, I have classes that I teach adults, and I have classes that I teach teachers, because they don't, even I find that US history teachers don't know a lot of this stuff. They don't know basic facts about the history of racism, so they don't teach the kids, and so a lot of discussions about race are, are based on a bunch of myths and misconceptions, and there's very little understanding of roots, the history and development structure of racism, basic, basic information. In fact, I, I originally taught the educator version faster because I assumed they were vaguely familiar with the knowledge, but I realized I had to slow down and, and teach it just as slowly as I taught the non-educators because I found out that it appears the vast majority of US history teachers are unfamiliar with this. It's not taught, even in college level. It's really sad, and I was no exception. I had these civil rights parents, I'm African American, and I had to spend weekends and weekends and weekends and weekends and hours and hours and hours teaching myself about the history of racism so that I could teach it in the classroom, which is the reason why I started my education and consultancy, because many years later, I said, well, let me teach teachers, you know, everything that I've learned, you know, I can distill everything I've learned in, you know, just several workshops, and I can give them the classroom materials I use, because I also had to spend years figuring out how to teach that, right? First, I had to learn it. And then I had to figure out how to teach. It. And again, there was very little available on how to teach about racism, about pedagogy and, and strategies. I had to figure it out. And so now I want to share that because there's no use in everybody else reinventing the wheel, right? But that was the game changer. The, the perspectives taking and the discussions, that's really icing on the cake, but that's not going to go very far unless you actually teach the facts and history of the history of racism. Um Because otherwise, they're just people I I see all the time, people having discussions based on a very extremely partial understanding of of racism. So, So they resort to opinions, feelings, myths, you know, so I had to figure out how to weave in the history of racism into my course. And one of the things that I did that turned out to be extremely successful is in 2016, with the elections, with Trump and Clinton. I wanted to do that first because I wanted my kids, my tenth graders to be able to participate in the national conversation about these issues, important issues. I don't really I didn't really care that much about the candidates, but I wanted them to be able to have conversations about the rising economic inequity, systemic racism, rising political ideological polarization, the issues that underline the elections. Sort of like the tip of the iceberg are the candidates and the, the things going on. But the bottom of the iceberg are these bigger issues that have been building since the 1950s. They didn't disappear yesterday. So I got permission from my supervisor to flip the script. And the first unit out was a six-week unit that traced the historical development of economic inequity, systemic racism, and political polarization from the 1950s to the present so that they could participate in conversations with their parents, they were able to understand the news, they could participate meaningfully in discussion. And we ended that six-week unit with a discussion in the evening with parents. I divided up the kids about uh, in about five different classrooms with half parents and half students in each classroom, and they discussed the underlying issues of today. You know, we're, again, we're preparing our students to address the problems of our society. And at the end of that unit, then I scrolled back and started again with with colonial era, and then we proceeded chronologically as usual. And it was supposed to be just for that one year because of the elections, but it went so well that both the head of the department and I said, oh, this is going to be permanent. <laughs> because what I found was when we went back in history, we were suddenly able to make all these connections. They were like, oh, so that's the origin. Or they would say, oh, my God, that's the exact same debate we're having today. You know, like, for example, mm-hmm. the debate between economic freedom and economic equity. All of a sudden, history became so much more relevant to them and they could make connections so much better. That really prepared students with basic facts and knowledge so they no longer have to resort to emotions and myths and misconceptions. And that really is the bread and butter. That's the foundation. That's the bottom of the iceberg. And then all that perspectives taking stuff is sort of the tip of the iceberg or the icing on the cake.
1: Mm -hmm. I'd really love to get into the nitty gritty of those first six weeks.
0: It divided up basically into three weeks and three weeks. We looked at economic inequity first, and then systemic racism deliberately, because as controversial as economic inequity is, it's not quite as controversial as racism. And so I wanted to build up a little bit of trust you know, with the kids before I touched that. So back in 2016, there was still that debate going on, was, that, was the rise of Trumpism because of economic anxiety or because of racial resentment. So I posed it like that. That was the... The question. And at that point, the jury would still out. Later, of course, you, you probably know most social scientists have decided that it's mostly because of racial resentment. But at that point in 2016, uh, there's lots of evidence on both sides still. So we're not worried about Trump, but rather Trumpism, which is a rise of people who are interested in voting for somebody like Trump. There's no major uh, judgment on that. So first, we've traced rising economic inequity from the 1950s to the present. We looked at deindustrialization, the rise of the service industry, and the bottoming out of industrial manufacturing jobs. So we're looking chronologically. Then we looked at the decline of unions. We looked at globalization and the loss of jobs and free trade agreements. We looked at the role of campaign finance and and then moving along chronologically, Great Recession. We traced the rise of Economic inequity since the 1950s. We went through all the major factors leading to current day historically high levels of economic inequity, and then we went back and we traced systemic racism uh, from the 1950s to the present. First, we looked at um, systemic racism in education. Then we had two days, I think, on systemic racism in housing. Then we looked at one day for race systemic racism in the justice system, including police brutality. Then we had another day on systemic racism in employment and poverty. And then we had a day when we put it all together. I did something called a causation puzzle. I put them into pairs and gave them a stack of cards that said things like redlining and the 1967 riots, you know, different elements. And I gave them a big poster and put them in pairs. And at the bottom, they put uh, the card that said uh, the Baltimore riots, the most recent ones. And then they had to arrange their index cards on the poster with arrows in order to. Show how we got to the Baltimore riots. They had to show both chronology, plus they had to understand how they led to and exacerbated each other, so they can understand that you know the Baltimore riots just didn't happen. People didn't just decide to uprise, you know, in one moment. Rather than that, there was all these historical elements that were exacerbating each other and leading to each other that eventually ended up exploding in the in the Baltimore riots. That helped them put everything together. And then we had a day on, okay, so now we know, we understand how systemic racism works. What should we do about it? And we had a deliberation on affirmative action, trying to understand each other's perspectives. And then finally, I wrapped it up with a day to pull it all together, influenced by Julie Harris's teaching on concept-based education. So we tried to pull together the big concepts of everything we had learned. And then we had the parent-student discussion in the evening.
1: And was the parent-student discussion about, was the rise of Trumpism caused by economic inequality or racial resentment?
0: Let me see. I don't think so. Um, Let me see if I can pull them up. It's been a long time. Okay, here's an example. Last year during the presidential election season, economic inequality became a topic of considerable media attention and debate. Is the wealth gap a new phenomenon? And what, if anything, can or should the government do to decrease this gap?
1: That's an empirical question followed by a policy question. Yes. Got it.
0: Here's another one. Disenfranchised peoples, such as women, people of color, LGBT community, the poor, and other minority groups, have categorically and systematically been excluded from participation in the dominant culture throughout American history. In what ways has the government attempted to protect these individuals? What extent has the government directly discriminated against minority groups or been complicit in societal discrimination against them? So they're all over the place, but they're big, big questions, you know, just to get them talking across generations. And it was, you know how with education, if the kids are just thinking they're just learning, memorizing things for the test, they may not, you know, (laughs) engage as deeply. But when they know that they have this seminar at the end and when they get a chance to speak their views and to be able to participate in these national discussions, it makes them feel really good. It makes them feel like what they're learning is relevant. And the kids were always apprehensive afterwards oh my god they were so 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 proud of themselves you know i talked about big issues of our country and tried to problem solve about them you know shoulder to shoulder with adults so that seminar at the end was very important i, I sent the parents uh, ahead of time I sent them the date on the very first day so that they could pencil into their schedule. And I also sent them a packet of readings, which many parents skimmed through just to get an idea of what kids were learning and what they knew, and also uh, the questions ahead of time. And the students, the day of, I fed them pizza and juice boxes, during that day, they spent the day in pairs or trios brainstorming answers to the questions, you know, because they were scared. So uh, it was helpful for them to... Sometimes a lot of main notes, you know, things that they could say and things they could bring up and insight, and you know, they they helped each other so that when they went into the rooms, they could feel more confident.
1: As you may have gathered, I'm very preoccupied with disaster as a teacher, and one thing that I noticed with this is that you you have three weeks where you're talking about economic inequality from 1950 to the present. And you haven't inoculated the racism. So that seems like you have sort of three weeks where kids might be saying anything. What do you do? I mean, does it happen? I assume it happens that a kid says something like pretty racially charged kind of in that time.
0: It never has happened. Really? No. I hate to say this, but if especially white kids, if they see data or text that does not mention race, they assume it's white. Mm
1: -hmm. That's a yeah, that makes sense. But you never had somebody say like, well, of course the immigrants or something like when they're looking at economic, like I could just, I could just imagine immigration coming up when you're looking at an economic inequality, talk about things like immigrants taking jobs. I would just imagine would come up, but, um, but I also take your point.
0: That, I have this, um, wonderful meme that I show in class. It's a photo of a, inside of a car manufacturing shop and it's all you know, mechanical. There's not a single person in it. There's tons of these huge machines, all orange colored, that are assembling the cars instead of people. And the meme says, I don't mean to be racist or anything, but all these immigrants taking our jobs look alike, you know, because all the machines are all <laughs> exactly the same. Yeah. Um, but before we look I mean we, we do a very good job of I am you know I'm a teacher, so we go through industrialization, the switch to mechanization the mechanization of jobs. You know what was happening with free trade and offshore investments, et cetera, et cetera. So we break down and see exactly where the jobs went. You know, so I, I, I've never had, once I think I had one kid on his test. He said, "Oh, immigrants had taken the jobs or something like that." But that was one kid in like four years. So again, it's day to day data, evidence, evidence, evidence. And then if you break it down, kids are not gonna not gonna resort to the myths and misconceptions. Because they don't have to, because they have the actual history and, and economics and data. But I do want to address one thing you said about preventing the oopsies and controversial things being said and offensive things being said. I am not very good at that, but I am very good at thinking about why kids say things like that, when they say it, um, you know, what sort of situations. And I just set up the classroom to prevent that <laughs> to, so that it doesn't. So, for example, from what I've seen and observed and researched, I can see why kids resort to these, you know, these emotions and myths because nobody ever taught them the history of the data behind it. So you solve the problem upstream instead of downstream because I'm not very good at that. So, you know, it took me a couple of years to um, finesse and really develop the strategies. But by the time I finished, I, I essentially had zero problems. You have to have a kid that's really set on saying something and that's a different situation. You're not going to have kids saying things out of ignorance because you've educated them. That's what we're here for.
1: I think that's really like, I hope really I'm empowering for people because I certainly had this sense that I had to be kind of like like a battle rapper or a lawyer as a teacher, that stuff was going to come at me and I was going to have to have <laughs> the exact right response instantly, I'm nicer than a battle rapper, obviously, but that I needed to have that quick reflex. And I think to hear that there's other ways of doing it, Someone had told me that a lot earlier, I think I would have been able to relax a lot.
0: You gotta play to your strengths, right? Not just as a teacher, but as a professional, as a person. The important thing is you know, know your strengths and know your weaknesses and use your strengths to try to minimize situations, you know, in your weaknesses.
1: For teachers who do want to get the benefit of all your work, what are the best ways to find and use your resources?
0: I'm trying to think. I have a Facebook page, Uprooting Inequity, but I haven't updated it in a while. And I have a website, uprootinginequity.com, or you could email me. And I also offer classes on the history of racism. Like I said, I have two versions, one for non-teachers and one for specifically U.S. history teachers. The one for U.S. history teachers also teaches you know all the tips and strategies and lessons you can use. For example, I teach one called The Origins of Race and Racism which go back to early colonial period when the concepts of race and racism were first developed. A lot of people, I didn't know that, you know, most people assume that race and racism always existed, but I go through, you know, how they were created using primary sources. And I also have some secondary sources from historians, from journal articles They can do, I've cut out paragraphs that they can do close readings in the classroom, et cetera. Um, And then I have the history of racism in different workshops
1: and what's the best way to find out when those are happening?
0: Just email me oftentimes. Sometimes I'll advertise them, but oftentimes if I can see I see this interest, then I'll just send everybody a doodle poll and find out when's a good time for everybody and work it around people as opposed to advertising random dates. You can email me at um uprooting at gmail.com.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. No problem. Um, Yes, thank you, Io. Hi Tech High Unboxed is written and edited by me, Alec Patton. My co-host on this episode is Gene Katubai, and our theme music is by Brother Herschel. We've included links to lots of I O Magwood's resources in the show notes, along with a link to the transcript. So check all that out and check out Io's website, uprootinginequity.com. And while your browser is open, check out our brand new website hthunboxed.org and you can follow us on Instagram at hthunboxed thanks for listening